Welcome to our journey. Our journey toward a more perfect union. Our more perfect union is an experiment, a grand experiment in something we all cherish, democracy. Welcome to our Radio Roundtable with higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Harvard's Executive Director for Health and Human Rights, Dr. Natalie Alinos, and from Beacon Hill, Representative Jeff Roy, as we the people celebrate the journey of America toward a more perfect union. Welcome to A More Perfect Union. Happy New Year. I'm Chris Wolfe, and joining me this week, our roundtable of radio regulars, higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Harvard's Executive Director for Health and Human Rights, Dr. Natalie Alinos, our Beacon Hill representative, Jeff Roy, our station manager, Peter Jay, and my co-host, Nick Remesong. The 118th Congress is in session, or rather, it should be. It isn't right now, at least at the time of this recording on Thursday, January 5th. Republicans narrowly clinched the most seats in the House of Representatives in the federal elections in November, but can't agree on who is going to become House Speaker. If there's no Speaker, Congress can't formally convene and get down to business. Kevin McCarthy, who's led the Republicans in the House since 2014, was so certain of his appointment that he moved his effects into the office of the Speaker, but a minority of about 20 of his fellow Republicans refused to support him. So Congress is paralyzed. How does this help build a more perfect union? We'll get to the politics in a moment, but first I always like to use our time to remind listeners or educate them about how our government is supposed to work as a tool to create a more perfect union. So I want to turn first to our resident state representative, Jeff Roy, as you, Jeff, probably have the most first-hand experience of parliamentary rules and procedures. Happy New Year, Jeff. Happy New Year to you, Chris. It's great to see everybody back and 2023. And boy, do I have a lot to say on this particular topic. It's uh, it's positively amazing to witness what's going on down in Washington and then uh, to see what happened uh, in Boston, Massachusetts yesterday. Uh, yesterday, we selected a Speaker of the House and a Senate President. And uh, the joke was made, uh, and this was all done in public, that we ought to send the video of this down to Washington, D.C., so that they can see directly how a Speaker of the House is appointed. Um, it's it's vital that, you know, in order to proceed, that you have leadership in place, not so that everybody can follow the leader, but so that the business of the government can get underway. So, and, yes. uh, Why is the role of the speaker so important? And what is the speaker supposed to do? The speaker is supposed to, uh, I'm I'm, I'm blanking on the phrase, but it's haul cats, you know, uh, hurdle cats, you know. uh, Herding cats. Herding herding cats. cats. That's what it is. The the role of the speaker of the house is to herd the cats. So, you know, in, in Congress, you have 435 members of the House of Representatives. In the state house in in Massachusetts, we have 160 members, and you know you choose a speaker that uh, shares your values that can help that body of be it 435 members or 160 members move forward. 
um, it's it's next to impossible to get people to move forward in a direction without leadership in place. Uh, because in the state house, there are 160 members who have 160 ideas about how things should get done and how the process should move. But uh, you really need one that everybody has confidence in that can uh, set the framework, set the tone. Uh, you know, our session begins with the selection of the speaker, but invariably that speaker will give a speech. And both uh, Speaker Mariano and Senate President Spilka both did a, a speech which outlined their priorities uh, for the session, which runs from 2023 to 2024, and you know, laid the groundwork for some of the things that we'll be working on. Set the table is exactly what it is. They don't rule in terms of um, what becomes law. I mean, what becomes law are the issues and pieces that the membership uh, brings to the table and advances and advocates for. And uh, he's kind of the, the referee to determine uh, when that piece will get to the floor, to determine whether or not there are the votes to get that matter, first of all, to the floor, and then once it gets to the floor, whether it will be successful. I think uh, true leadership does not want to bring a matter to the floor that will lose. That does not show effective leadership. So there's a lot of wrangling that goes on to see, hey, do we have enough votes to be successful on this particular issue? And one that was highlighted yesterday during the remarks of the speaker uh, was the license bill for undocumented aliens and how there was difficulty in achieving consensus on that particular bill. We all knew how controversial it was. For the 10 sessions before that bill had failed, and our particular speaker wanted to make sure before he brought that to the floor that it could be successful. And uh, as you well know, it was successful. Uh, it passed both the House, it passed both the Senate, then the governor vetoed the bill. Then it had to come back to both the House and the Senate to be uh, to override that veto. And if you followed it real closely, you saw that there was a citizen's petition to overrule what we had done. And uh, thankfully, the voters of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts upheld that particular uh, vote by the House and Senate. And uh, that became law. But, you know, you really need leadership in place in order to move along uh, on a pathway to success. Uh, the Speaker of the House appoints all of the committee chairs uh, to their positions. So he selects uh, or she selects a leadership team that uh, you know can put in place the, the policies that we as a group determine uh, should be done. The Speaker also has to deal with all of the problems that uh, occur on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, members who may be unhappy with one thing or another from as big as, hey, I can't get my bill to the floor to, hey, I don't have enough uh, staff people in my office or I don't like the location of my office. Uh, you know, the speaker has to deal with all those uh, personnel issues. We have about 500 employees uh, in the speaker. Uh, in the House of Representatives in Massachusetts. And, uh, you know, there's a lot to be done and uh, you, you need a, an effective speaker. Uh, unlike uh, Massachusetts, uh, unlike uh, the 
U.S. Congress, our sessions are begun by the dean of the House. So the dean of the House is the longest serving member who convenes the body and uh, places before the body a, a vote on the new Speaker of the House. For the U.S. Congress, they rely on the clerk uh, of the House. And I understand the uh, current clerk was appointed by Nancy Pelosi. So she's running things uh, until they appoint a speaker. And uh, until one person gets 218 votes, there's nothing that can be done down in Washington, D.C. And uh, I think the most uh, humorous thing I saw of that whole proceeding was that Hakeem Jeffries got 212 votes. Every single Democrat voted for him, and he got more votes than Kevin McCarthy got uh, for Speaker of the House. Uh, yet the magic number is 218. You know, the the what this leaves in place is a series of machinations that could take place. You know, uh, if the Republicans are not going to cooperate, a wise Kevin McCarthy would be to reach out to some of the Democrats and see if he can bring them on board and actually share some of the power, promise a certain committee chairmanship to some of the uh, the Democrats in the House. I don't know how many of you follow Massachusetts politics uh, too closely, but uh, when Tom Finneran became the Speaker of the House, that's exactly what he did. Uh, he had uh, reached out to the Republicans and managed to get all of the Republicans, it was something like 35 or 40 at the time, to vote for him, a Democrat, as the Speaker of the House, and surprised and shocked everyone on that first day of the session when he had enough votes to become the speaker because he had pulled the Republicans in. Of course, he had to give them much more power than they're used to having, but it elevated him to speaker. And uh, if I were Kevin McCarthy, I'd give that some close consideration. Well, I think we might have seen some of that uh, when we saw, you know, the the press, of course, uh, commented on it widely when you see uh, Matt Gates and, and um, Ocasio-Cortez sitting down and having a little chat. Uh, I think he's sending out the, you know, they're, they're contacting the, the two extreme ends of both parties sitting down together like that. That, to me, would indicate that something might be going on. Yeah. And it, it ultimately, it makes sense. At the surface, one of the issues, I think, is that there is such a acrimonious wall between the two parties. Uh, it's difficult to engineer politically that kind of linkage, say, for chairmanships and whatnot. But yeah, Jeff, you're absolutely right. There are Democrats, I think, that might look at Kevin McCarthy as someone they might have an opportunity to work with on some things versus an alternative coming from the MAGA section of the Republican Party. And right now, the MAGA section has not lost an inch of its 20-person strength and is continuing to prevail in its demands right now. Up until yesterday afternoon, it was interesting that nobody was really emerging as a successor to McCarthy. There was nobody on the horizon. You know, we knew what we didn't want, or they knew what they didn't want, but nobody was saying, well, what about this idea? What? How do we go forward with this? And given that even Jim Jordan, who was a clear public figure and runner said, no, not me, not today. I don't want, 
maybe just Jim Jordan's happy to continue taking pot shots from the gallery. I don't know, but uh, he really didn't want to tackle that job. And and quite frankly, it's it's a hurting cats doesn't even begin to describe it. I mean, it's it's a tough job when you're in D.C. to do that. Uh, and Nancy Pelosi knew it, signed on to it, and did it. And now, as of yesterday afternoon, Byron, Byron Donalds is emerging from Florida. And, you know, Byron was one of the people who joined the far right vote uh, amidst all of the voting cycles. And at this juncture, uh, they are promoting him as their candidate. And he touts himself on Twitter as liberty loving, trope, uh, pro Trump, tr- pro Second Amendment, pro life husband, father to three. So um, and this is the beginning of his second term in office. So at this juncture, he is probably at about the right place politically where a lot of him could be unknown at this point as a young guy. Um, But at the same time, if his profile reads like what the far right is looking for, uh, they it, he gives them energy to keep going and pursuing and pursuing. Now, it's interesting as to whether or not the rest of the Republican Party is prepared to rally around someone like that. He may find that, you know, the Mitt Romney's, uh, Susan Collins and the more uh, centrist Republicans aren't going to feel good about that at all. And they'll want to avoid perhaps the the rule by the tyranny of the minority. So. Yeah, Kevin, like you said, Jeff, Kevin would be wise to take another go around at it and see what he could throw over the fence to the Democrats to pull a couple of votes, you know, maybe from, you know, senators like Cinema Manchin and a couple of others who might have an opportunity to, again, exercise more of their own will. But this one, this one, I think, may be far from over. And by the time this program airs, we, we certainly don't know what will happen. But one of the outcomes may be that there may be no resolution by the time this program actually goes to air in, in what, four days? So yes, remains so to there, be seen, there, doesn't it? There are historical precedents. Uh, there were 100 years ago, in 1923, there was a similar situation where they couldn't agree on a speaker. And then back in 1855 and 56, it took 100 and 33 ballots when the newly emerged Republican Party was then trying to figure out. Uh, Only 133. Wow. 130. So we are, yeah, we're rookies by comparison <laughs> yeah. to the to the people uh, who uh, at that time were staring at some wow. terrible divisions in the country as well. So um, hey, this, not, a, not a great uh, precedent. Piece, not at all, but it, it certainly uh, is a good indication of how this legislative session is going to be. For the Republicans, if they're mm-hmm. struggling on this issue, uh, just think of uh, how they will struggle on getting bills out of mm. the House. I don't see them being very productive if they keep uh, at this pace. I mean, once they even get organized, they know there's a 20 member minority that can just hold up anything that they want. And that's a very dangerous uh, position to be in. And uh, I often hear people say um, Massachusetts is out of whack and out of balance because you have uh, too many Democrats. And, uh, you know, that's not a good thing to happen. And I always point to Washington, D.C. I said, hey, you've got real balance there. How's that working out for you? 
Really? Um, exactly. It, yeah. it, it's it's yeah. not a pretty picture. Also, too, consider, Jeff, that we can look back on the last uh, couple of years when in, in the Biden administration, there was the big struggle for pretty large legislation, pretty large funding. And Nancy Pelosi, uh, working with uh, the president, had to manage the relationships between uh, AOC, Bernie Sanders on the left, uh, and then the centrists between Manchin and Cinema, and find some way to get something passed. So there was the spectrum of positions and and degrees of commitment across a not entirely unified and homogenous Democratic Party. But they managed to get some things done. No doubt it was frustrating, but they did manage. Uh, now we have the mirror image with the Republican Party, where you've got a pretty strong far-right coalition. You have a few centrists who you know maybe have more open minds to what might be, but at the same time, it's it's clear that the Republican Party is by no means homogenous, and it's going to take a really strong speaker to find a way to rally that. I mean, that was one of the things between the president and Nancy that the Democrats at least had experienced leadership that everybody in the party felt like they could work with in some way and rally around. Uh, so whether it's Kevin McCarthy going forward or whether it's a new person, the strength of that leadership is really going to be challenged no matter what happens. It's going to be tough, like you said. Yeah. And you've got to think, is it, uh, you know, as if uh, one were a Republican, I think you'd be a little dismayed that this kind of dis open disunity and like open infighting um, is just bad politics. It's not, it's very unappealing to the public at large. You would think that the, the big party leaders would be horrified at this kind of mess. And, and and I'm kind of surprised that there hasn't been more of an effort to try to Jeff, you probably understand the parliamentary procedure better than I do, but isn't there a um, isn't there a party whip you can use in situations like this, or is threatening to take the whip away going to destroy your minority, you know, undermining your, that that option? Well, you need to elect uh, these players as well, um, and you saw that the uh, the Democratic Caucus was able to put its leadership team in place with Hakeem Jeffries at the top. Uh, our congressman, a um, congresswoman, um, whose name escapes me at the moment from Massachusetts, uh, Clark, Congresswoman Clark, is the number two in the Democrat um, uh, Party. But that's because they came together uh, for all the right reasons and and put these folks in place. Uh, the Republicans are in, in a real mess, and this is not a new phenomenon. I mean, you go back and you look at the the horrible term that Tim Ryan, uh, oh my Tim God. Ryan uh, uh, Paul Ryan, Paul Ryan, yeah. he had a horrible term. Then uh, before yes. him, John Boehner yes. uh, had to leave. Mm -hmm. He couldn't mm -hmm. take it anymore. Yeah, he so lived away the way from back the office. To, <laughs> exactly. Go all the way back to Newt Gingrich. Oh, uh, yeah. They, the Republicans have mm -hmm. had a real difficult time. And then you see leaders like Nancy Pelosi emerge. Yeah, she had a little struggle at the beginning of uh, her last term when she was challenged. But man, once things got put in place, uh, she masterfully moved 
things uh, through mm-hmm. that uh, body. And, uh, you know, I, I don't have the statistics at my fingertips, but the number of bipartisan pieces of legislation that were passed in the last two years uh, in the U.S. Congress is overwhelming. Mm. It's incredible how much work got done. And that's because of effective leadership that mm. we are just not seeing on the Republican side. Exactly. When you so, mention people like oh, sorry, Boehner, man. when you mention people like Boehner, Paul Ryan, et cetera, thinking back and hearing these people, uh, seeing these people, these were not dumb people. These were not crazies. These were not people who were at any kind of fringe. I mean, they may have had some strong beliefs, strong politics. Maybe I didn't agree with them, whatever. But when I saw them and when I heard them, they were making strong cases. They were applying as much leadership, both publicly and I'm sure privately, as they could. They were capable people for whatever they were doing. And for them, you know, to struggle, limp away from the office, not want to do it anymore. As you mentioned, Jeff, it, it points to some deeper recesses in the Republican Party where there are issues that really need to be addressed. And the uh, divisions within the party seem to run a whole lot deeper mm-hmm. over this past decade. Um, mm-hmm. the, where we are now with the far right, what is it, the Freedom Caucus? They really seem to be dug in uh, and maybe not dug in for the best of all reasons. Some of it just may be notoriety. Some of it just may be this is their opportunity to exercise power, period, for their own personal reasons. But if their candidate, if any candidate that they put forward as a pro-Trump MAGA, you know, America first candidate can't prevail and they won't give in on any other candidate that won't take on that posture, this may go on for quite some time. Right. But I also point out that um, what we see and hear in public is very different from what's actually going on. I wouldn't be surprised if this uh, Freedom Caucus is trying to um, extort uh, commitments on um, committee chairmanships and uh, things of that nature. Uh, so it's it may be that the what we're seeing, this, this outright um, obstructionism, is actually... Um, Willful, publicly, mm-hmm. I don't say violent. Oh yeah, I, um, I, that, I think that's pretty tactic. much a given. Yeah, I think that's pretty much a given. There's a lot of posturing going on, and saber rattling, and and just you know we're going to just dig in and we're going to stop everything. But in the meantime, they're 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 aware that they've lost their uh, their night on uh, their shining night. I, w- I would contend that that I would agree with that by degree. That is. I think of of the 20, we'll call them the 20. I think that there are people who are applying it exactly as you said. In the background, there are negotiations for chairmanships. There are negotiations for, all right, how are we really going to do this? What do you got for me? And at the same time, if you considered it a 50-50 split, 10-10, there are probably 10 others in there who just don't care. We're yeah, far right. I mean, we're staying there. We're going to, you know, period. We ain't moving. Yeah. And if yeah. there are the, if the there, purists if there are only uh, idealists, yeah. if you wanted a positive term, and if in fact there are eight to ten of those, if there is division mm-hmm. within the division, uh, then this may go on even for far longer. And, well, and that, they're they're going to have to be some discussions within their party. If somebody like a Matt Gates or somebody is actually trying to make something happen internally, they're going to have to turn around and and go back to. Uh, the most extreme of their members and say, look, this is the time to say, okay, 
we're doing this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so well, there, there only needs to be one or two because the you have yeah. to have two hundred and eighteen. Uh, right. The clear majority. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think a so lot of this. I learned, oh, sorry. Go ahead, a lot man. of this rigidity goes, um, you know, back as far as Tom Delay. Yeah. I mean, that was a man who, you know, he had no real concept of government. He was a, you know, he just came in there and his stance was no compromise at any time. Nothing, no consensus. Nothing is brought to a consensus. There is no compromise. What we say goes and we don't budge. I mean, it was kind of like the old uh, Russian uh, battle of order of battle. Drew your tranks, tanks up wheel to wheel and you never retreat. Here are my terms. Have a great day. Have it somewhere mm-hmm. else. Yeah, and that was <laughs> yeah, that was our boy Tom Delay, and we see how well that's worked for him. Yeah, there's a couple of things I was reminded of this week, which I found um, quite interesting. One is that the uh, speaker does not have to be uh, a representative; right. it can be an outside person, which which I was surprised at. And so uh, I have seen the name uh, Lee Zeldin being thrown around, uh, who just lost his seat in Congress, and um, I'm not sure if it was facetious, but one newspaper even talked about. Um, Donald Trump being put forward as um, a potential speaker of the House. I can't see that actually happening, but it's an interesting proposition. Yeah. The other interesting thing that I was um, reminded of is that the um, speaker is uh, second in line to the presidency mm-hmm. in case anything awful should happen to the president and vice president. So that's another interesting uh, vacuum that we have at the moment. They actually played that scenario out in House of Cards. Yes. Uh, which was the American version of a similar British program, actually. Yeah. Felix Urquhart. Um, yeah, they've played that out in a couple of different places. Yeah. yeah. Um, seven days in May. Yeah. They, they've right. Kind of, yeah. Hollywood always kind of follows a, at a short distance uh, with this stuff, but uh, they don't always do a good job, but sometimes they nail it. So then it gets us back to the question is, when do we think that the Republican Party is going to nail it? Yeah. <laughs> Well, it'll be interesting to see how long this goes on, and there are going to be maneuvers that uh, may break some new ground. I don't know. And one can only hope that there will be an end to the stalemate, because as encouraging as it may be to some to say, oh, well, this shows that Trump's out and the, the Trump faction's dying, it's still it's, it's holding up legislation. It's holding up the effective working of government in the, on the federal level, and that is not that's not really a choice that we should be making. That's not something we should be applauding. There it's also be... holding up. It's also holding up all those investigations <laughs> that the Republicans are are mm-hmm. planning. Yeah, yeah. Um, Hunter Biden. That, yeah. That's the good news. Uh, yeah. you know, I was just going to say, uh, <laughs> you know, yeah, it's holding up, uh, holding up uh, Congress. But you know, some of the things that they were planning to do aren't necessarily in the public interest, and. Uh, you know, it's clear to me that they're not interested in doing anything. And uh, I, it also reminds me of that great line from uh, LBJ. He said, any jackass can knock down a barn, but it takes a good carpenter to build one. And uh, I will say that these folks are acting like jackasses because they just mm-hmm. want to tear things down. Mm-hmm. And they're not acting mm-hmm. like the good carpenters that we need. Uh, you know, to have an effective government, you know, you, at some point, uh, you win your election, you have to put your party affiliation to the side and understand that you represent people of all parties and all persuasions, and you are their voice and their representative. 
in in Washington's case on Capitol Hill, in my case on Beacon Hill. Mm -hmm. And uh, in order to be an effective uh, representative, you have to understand that and represent folks to the best of your ability. And what they're showing down here, down there in Washington is that that's not what they're interested in. They're just interested in making a scene, making Mm -hmm. a splash, making noise and not being not being effective at governing. And that is just a real sad commentary on the state of political affairs today. And as I always say, I thank God I live in Massachusetts. (laughs) And I thank God every day that our state is stepping up to the plate and filling in the gaps where the federal government is failing us each and every day. And uh, our, our children can go to school uh, they can get meals at school. Um, people can get housed and clothed, and uh, all because our state government is stepping in and doing the right things. And um, I feel bad for some of the folks who are in some of the other states that do not have strong local mm. and state governments. Uh, yeah, and on the thank federal God level. I'm in Massachusetts. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Amen. Federal level, you got the two demigods: chaos yeah. and disruption. Right. And I'm expecting that they're probably going to be the co-chairs of the committee to investigate the nefarious behavior and malfeasance of one Dr. Anthony Fauci with respect to COVID. Good hell. <laughs> you know, so yeah, that, that's, that's, that's an investigation mm-hmm. that, you know. That's money well spent. Yeah, 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 yeah there say, you go. That's yeah. my taxpayer dollars at work. When When you hear people threatening things like that, it's very disheartening. Certainly as a a banner of promise from the party coming into power in, in the House of Representatives, it's, you know, it's, I'm sorry, but it's just not a good look to say that we're going to go into a scorched earth world, you know, chasing after uh, anything that we can drum up on the leadership rather than getting down to business. It's just not a good look. And they would be b- much better served saying, look, we're going to go in there and we're going to do the work of the people. Uh, we have legislation we think is appropriate. We have issues that we want to really work on. And this idea of continuing to, you know, thrust into the past is is entirely counterproductive. And I think that that's lurking way deep down underneath all of this division that the Republican Party is suffering from. And that's really unfortunate. They've got to find a way to purge that thinking in order to put themselves in a position not only to exercise power you know, with some degree of responsibility, but potentially in the next go round to even retain it. I don't know that just continue to bashing Democrats over past ills, real or imagined, is a way forward for them anymore. It's it's mind boggling to me. Well, I think you hit an interesting point there, Pete, is that uh, I when you said, you know, they're not uh, pursuing um, specific proposals or ideas. And I have for some years now struggled to actually, uh, when I think about it, identify what are the ideas and platforms, what is the vision for America that the Republican Party would want to build. I, I, I struggle with that, trying to articulate anything other than trying to reverse the country back to what it looked like more in the 1950s mm. in some respects uh, as regards uh, the role and position of half the population uh, and uh, women, I mean, and then uh, 
or unfortunately some racial issues as well but mm. what is it that, that the vision that, that they would want to pursue so in this in the absence of a clear and articulate platform uh, of ideas um there's this uh, incessant attempt to mobilize their supporters through these these culture wars and, and other nonsenses like that distractions dog, really dog whistle issues yeah that's my humble opinion no i'm i'm in there with imho as well <laughs> and i have to say that um unless and until i hear something really concrete you know they're they're setting themselves up for something people began calling them a few years ago the party of no and that it that doesn't wear well either so there are some things that they could get behind that i think people would feel good about or okay with right now with what's going on in ukraine and what's going on around the world with further threats from china north korea and so on you know the republican position has always been to back a strong military and to fund it well to which i say amen i believe that a strong well-funded forward-looking military only serves to protect our interests against you know growing threats from around the world and that not only growing in strength per threat but growing in the sheer number of threats between iran north korea russia china you know that list as that list gets longer one should be more nervous and having the ability even in a proxy war like what we're going on right right now with ukraine the ability to prove that we can act and the ability to prove that we can defend ourselves and our allies effectively perhaps surprisingly effectively to our enemies is a good thing that is money that is never ever poorly spent in my view and that's always been sort of a vaguely stable central republican position so there have to be other things out there that the party can put forward and say see we were right or we continue to support these things but the dog whistle is but you can't put a lot of emotion behind that and at the end of the day what we call these dog whistle issues are all about emotion it's all about rallying anger distrust discontent whatever it takes to get people to respond and within the congress right now that's some of what we are seeing uh, on the republican side it's unfortunate so where we go from here on this whole thing with mccarthy is anybody's guess what was it yogi said it ain't over till it's over and we don't know when it's going to be over no i think you're right it's um they're trying times uh there's no two ways about it but then like always i go back to the trying times of previous generations my parents both of them born in the mid-20s they spent their entire childhood and their entire teenage years in the depression just as they were coming out of that they go into world war ii mm -hmm. and then you had korea then other little liaisons also but they came through and i think the country the country came through with them uh as a result of their guidance and mm -hmm. as a result of the guidance of the people that we had in in uh in office at that time do i despair of even dramatic very traumatic incidences not drawing this country together <laughs> to a certain extent yeah i think that sometimes right now we're reacting to trauma with two separate camps and neither yeah. camp will attempt to alleviate the pain and the suffering well i, I think I, I think I, I think i can sort of wrap this all up with my own perspective on 2023 and you guys can weigh in you know we had <laughs> you know 
We all had hopes for a great new year in 2020 when COVID was, you know, starting to perk. And well, guess what? 2020 wasn't a great year. We all had great hopes for a bright, shiny new year in 2021. And, you know, guess what? COVID hadn't left the house yet, was still raging along. Along comes 2022. And once again, we dust off our bright, shiny hopes for a grand new year. And 2022 teaches us that basically it's endemic. We have the supply side issues. And now comes along 2023, and we're trying to dust off our bright, shiny new hopes. And what I've done this year is I'm looking 2023. I'm looking at you, 2023, giving you the squint eye of suspicion. <laughs> hope can go wait. Hope can go wait in the car. <laughs> I'm basically with you know with uh, what's going on in China at this juncture, with uh, the difficulty that the Chinese are facing, with a much delayed uh, COVID outbreak because of the severe lockdowns. They don't have a lot of herd immunity. They don't have a very powerful vaccine to fight it. And I'm concerned that that's going to give COVID another opportunity to go around yet again uh, with all of the related supply side issues because they do so much of the manufacturing. And so that's a, a fear of mine. And it's obvious effects on the market. And then there's obviously what's going on in Ukraine, which if we can find a way to help the citizens of Ukraine get through the winter, uh, we may be able to see this thing resolve in the spring. I'm hopeful on that score, but we got to get there. We're three or four months away, I think, from any possible resolution yeah. uh, in Ukraine. And then, of course, you know, we have our bad actors on the sidelines and the wings, you know, North Korea, Iran, and so on. <laughs> so um, hey, let me uh, let me be a little bit more rosy for 2023. Jeff's putting because, on the pink glasses. Go for it. Because <laughs> I'm going to uh, leave this program today, uh -huh. uh, and I'm not sure when it will air, but uh, within an hour after leaving this program, I'm going to be sitting on the House floor where we are going to inaugurate the 73rd governor for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Yeah, we are going to, uh, uh, we're going to inaugurate the first woman that has ever been elected as the governor in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Uh, and I'm going to witness the peaceful transition of power mm -hmm. uh, that uh, we did not see in right. uh, 2021. You know, I participated last night in uh, Governor Baker's uh, lone walk out mm -hmm. of the building back uh, to the uh, Boston Common uh, and saw people from all sides of the aisle there greeting him wishing him the best, talking to him, taking pictures with him, hugging him, kissing him. It was uh, just a, a splendid display of character. Mm -hmm. And uh, I expect that I will see the same thing when I walk in today and uh, Mara Healy uh, is sworn in as the next governor of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And if anything doesn't provide you with hope, sitting through a ceremony like that really uh, energizes and and, mm. and and puts in place a lot of great moments where government truly can work. And yeah, there's mm. there's going to be criticism. I understand that there is actually uh, a protest planned for uh, the state house today, but that's okay. They'll mm -hmm. be they'll be out there. They'll be that's making the people some noise. in action. That's the people in action. But we will proceed. And uh, I I'm very excited to see. Uh, what a new administration and what new ideas and uh, what new passion a new governor can bring 
uh, mm-hmm. to the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. So I'm going to ignore what's happening <laughs> down in Washington, D.C. for a wise at least move today <laughs> and uh, <laughs> sit back and enjoy. Because uh, I don't know if you recall, but the last time I was sworn in was on January 6th of 2021 uh-huh. at 11 o'clock in the morning. I took my oath of office. Something happened on that day? Absolutely. Yeah. What's that? Did something happen on that day uh, somewhere? Something happened on that day. Last so, year? Uh, we had finished the you ended, session. You ended up below the fold. <laughs> I certainly did. Well, we finished our session January 5th at about uh, four, o'clock, 4 o'clock in the morning. It was actually January wow. 6th. Yeah. So, we, you know, we had to get a few hours of sleep. Uh, and then I had to wake up again at 9 o'clock uh, to be ready for swearing in at 11. Uh-huh. And, you know, come one or two o'clock when the ceremony was over, I was absolutely exhausted. I said, you know, I'm going to sit back. I'm going to turn on the TV and just let my brain fry for a little. I turned uh-huh. on the TV and I saw what was happening yet you again in Washington, D.C. Uh-huh. And I said, are you kidding me? This is supposed to be the most beautiful day and a, a, a relaxing moment and a, a moment of of rebirth. Yeah. nation and it's utter chaos it was awful but the kind uh, of scene I'm where optimistic. you wonder the kind of scene where you wonder who did the special effects <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so today's a much better day and uh, i'm going in with a, a grand amount of enthusiasm uh, despite what's happening in dc good good excellent and we are enthusiastic along with you Thanks, Jeff. That's a great note to end on as another more perfect hour has flown by and we have to say goodbye until next week. If you would like to weigh in on our discussions, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info at franklin.tv. That's I-N-F-O at franklin.tv. If you enjoyed our discussion, please let us know. If you disagree, all the more reason to let us know. You can also share or listen to this program or any of our past episodes anytime. Our podcasts are available online. Just visit our website, wfpr.fm. That's wfpr.fm. For uh, Representative on Beacon Hill, Jeff Roy, our station manager, Peter Jay, and my co-host, Nick Rummersong, I'm Chris Wolf. Thanks for listening and joining our shared journey toward a more perfect union. This is Franklin Public Radio.